Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Good morning, Journey Church. It's my heart's desire that you're experiencing the grace of God in each and every way imaginable. I just returned from a delightful vacation uh, in California, specifically Newport Beach. And question for you, have you ever been on a vacation or an adventure looking forward to it for days, weeks, or months? And yet when the adventure comes, when the vacation is there, there are just so many things in life that are pulling at your heart, attempting you to, to pull you into a vortex of anxiety just makes it difficult to be present, fully present and fully enjoy the moment. Universal experience, yeah, I just lived that, okay? Let me tell you, it turned out to be a great vacation. But as we went there, and um, pretty cool head, uh, fairly good at compartmentalizing in a healthy manner, and yet on Saturday evening, I get a text from Connor, the reporter at News Channel 4 KVOA, asking how I'm doing, how our project's going back here in Tucson, and uh, letting me know that the story will finally air that evening. Not that it's bad, just something pulling me back to Tucson and ministry here. Along with that, another text message from a dear man in our congregation checking in on me, asking about the services the next day, and raising a significant concern. A good concern, an important concern, yet uh, another thing pulling at me emotionally. And then two other topics, one in my family, extended family, very significant thing going on. And then another thing that's ongoing here in the church, a challenge, something that we're working through. And you get the idea. I sat on the beach many moments taking deep breaths and deep sighs. You know that? Like, if you're watching me, and some of you have done this before, like, are you okay? Because I'm looking at the sky and the ocean trying to be present, and yet there is an experience of anxiety and multiple things pulling me into that experience. Now, as I sat there, I wondered, is there an experience of God? Is there an intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ that is bigger than my restless mind and my anxious heart? You ever ask that, wonder that? something that can actually buoy our spirit spirits, not that we are insulated from the pain and difficulty, challenges of this world, but times when you just go, God, are you bigger? Is your grace enough? Um, will you touch my heart? Will you release these things from me? Well, like I said, the vacation turned out great, but you know, as they say, when it rains, it pours. Heard that? Back from vacation, first day back from vacation, actually second, second uh, morning, we wake up in the Roden household to evidence of a slab leak under our guest bathroom. 
And so all day Friday and all day yesterday, attempting to address those things as well. Perhaps you are here and you can identify with one or another or any number of different kinds of challenges in your life. Things that aren't going so well. Things that are bothering you. Things that are burdening your heart. Ways in which you are being agitated. Relationships that are irritating and troubling. I bet you have at least one or two things that you might admit. Anxiety producing joy robbing concerns in your life. And I asked the same question that I asked on the beach. What if there was an experience of life and joy that was so resilient, so solid, that no matter how agitating or irritating the issues of life, that this joy is far greater? And this, I believe, is the life and joy that was intended for us through intimacy with the Father and through His Son. Jesus Christ, and I believe that at the beginning, middle, and end of 1 John, this is the heartbeat. Sixteen weeks in uh, our study of 1 John, all the way up to Advent, so you're ready for this. A deep dive into 1 John, but before we begin this morning, there's a few questions we need to ask by way of introduction, and then we'll jump into John's prologue or introduction. The first question that we need to ask is, how do we know that this letter is from from John, seeing as he is never named? The author does not introduce himself in the same way that the, the author of Hebrews never introduces himself. Here's three quick things to point us in the direction of John. First off, the author does, in fact, place himself amongst the eyewitnesses and even the disciples of Jesus Christ. Secondly, His theology, his phrases, his style match his gospel. Schultz says in the whole of the first epistle, there is hardly a single thought that is not found in the gospel of John. And thirdly, early church writers, including Arrhenius, Clement, and Tertullian, cited John as the author. So that's our first question and how we answer that. Second question, who, when, where, and to whom did he write 1 John? Well, we... uh, believe that John is a kind of elder statesman of the apostles. Likely, he is the final living apostle. The rest of them have been martyred, murdered for their eyewitness testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ. We know from church history that John moved to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Ephesus, In the year 67, some say with the mother of Jesus, Mary, that she moved there as well. This is only three years before the Roman general Titus ransacked Jerusalem. So John got out of Jerusalem on time. He's possibly writing, it's called a general epistle because we don't have the audience specifically, but a great and interesting thought is that perhaps... John is somehow the bishop of the churches in Asia Minor, the same churches that he addresses in Revelation 2 through 3. Ephesus being uh, really, in 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 essence, at the center in these other churches being splayed out, that perhaps these are his, quote, little children. 
my best guess is that John wrote his gospel first. And what commentators and scholars say is 85 to 90 AD, very late in the second century or the first century. First, second, and third John uh, are quite possibly a package deal. This was fascinating to me. The heart of the message is first John. Second John is a cover letter to the congregation. Third John is a cover letter to the pastors of the congregation. Interesting. Um, but these letters, we think, were written between 90 and 95 A.D. And then finally, Revelation is written between 95 and 96 A.D. when he is exiled to the island of Patmos by the Roman emperor Diocletian. Or Domitian, excuse me. And that's the final thing that I just want to mention. Um, emperor Domitian reigned in the Roman Empire from 81 to 96. So all of John's writings fall under the rule of the emperor Domitian. Uh, he was known for his persecution of the Jews and Christians, which would have been a daily concern for all the recipients of First John. Talk about an anxiety-producing, joy-robbing concern that Roman soldiers and neighbors perhaps or maybe even likely are one day going to turn against you, kick you out of your professional guild, fire you from jobs, ostracize or maybe even murder you. John writes to these individuals in this context. What's the purpose of his letter? Well, interesting, the purpose of John's gospel is unique in all of the Old and New Testament canon. And we discover that the reason for the writing of his gospel is to non-believers that they might become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this at the end of John's gospel in John 20, 31. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I believe that came first. You've got to lead them to Christ first. What is 1 John in light of this and what we read there? 1 John is written not to unbelievers, but to believers who already have eternal life. We find that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. He tells us exactly who he is writing to. Little ones and young men and elders, all being titles for Christians at, at, at different ages and stages of their walk with Christ. And in essence, as we read through 1 John, we discover that it's written to believers that they might walk with, obey, love, know, abide in, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in so doing, have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with his Son, and in that fellowship might experience life and joy. First John, therefore, is discipleship curriculum par excellence. That is why we have chosen First John in an age, in a, in a, a season of, in a year of focusing in on church health. Churches are only as healthy as are their members. If our church is going to be healthy, every single person here must be a disciple 
an obedient disciple, a loving, obedient disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's agenda that we see through all out First John is he wants the believer's mind, heart, and real-world behaviors to align with the heartbeat of Jesus. So let's jump into the introduction. We already read it, but let's read it again. This is called the prologue by many, but fascinating and important piece of Scripture. This was that which was from the beginning. He starts in verse 1. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. First thing I'll just mention in passing, Jesus' language, um, we, ours, and us, in the plural form. What I think is going on here is John the elder statesman, the final living apostle, is representing all of the other apostolic witnesses to the life and teaching and miracles and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's using this this literary we, this royal we, us and our kind of language. But the very first thing that I think we want to drill down on this morning is this, and you can fill this in in your outline, is this, that this, this quote, word of life is a he, not merely an it. Okay, the first thing that we have to ask is the word of life, it's not in caps in our ESV translation. It's not, in, it's not capitalized. Um, so we have to ask the question, is this word of life personal or impersonal? Is this the same semi-technical designation of the Son of God found in the prologue to John's Gospel? Or is it rather a synonym for the word of the Gospel? And we see there again um, on, in the ESV, the translators of the ESV played it safe. And that's okay, because in the Greek you cannot... You want to throw that up, that next slide? Um, you can see that it's word of life. They played it safe. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. But in the Greek, you can't know if this is a title or something else. Okay, the emphasis here that we see in John's prologue to his epistle, though, is on the tangible, three senses, firsthand eyewitness experience of John and the apostles of a person, a person that was made manifest. Therefore, I would argue that the word of life is a person. It is a he. So I personally prefer the capitalization of the word word. There it is. And if you have an NASB, New American Standard, New International Version, New King James, 
let me just say the difference. They, they took a step of boldness to translate and interpret. ESV played it safe. That's okay. Um, the others just rushed in and say, that's a title for the second person of the Godhead. John has used this technical kind of language for the second person of the Godhead before. In fact, this is how he opens up his gospel. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And by the way, in the Greek, it's not capitalized. You can read this, and the ESV in this instance actually took the step of interpretation and said, that's a title. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I would argue he's just doing the same thing again in 1 John. But here's a question. Why does he change it, and instead of just the Word, the Word of life? Well, let's take that apart. First off, the Word. Word. Logos is that word. It's a word uttered by a living voice. can also mean a concept or an idea. James Strong writes this in his concordance about this as a royal title or designation for Jesus. He says, the essential word of God, Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God, his minister in creation and government of the universe, the cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical, which for the procurement of man's salvation put on human nature in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the second person in the Godhead, and shone forth conspicuously from his words and deeds. In other words, Jesus is the very word uttered, the very exclamation of God the Father himself. Jesus is the one true supreme creator, God. The word of life is a he, not merely an it. But the question is, why does this matter? Why do we stop and camp out? It's not to actually say this translation or that one is better. But why does drilling down on this matter? And it's because of this. Relationship always trumps benefits. You follow? Relationship comes first. And the gospel means nothing without Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the gospel. It begins with a relationship, and all eternal life flows from a relationship with Jesus. We just read this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Check this out. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. We all want life, but life is not found without first having the Son. So I back this phrase up to this is a he, not an it. The it, salvation, flows from the he. He is called life in so many different ways. Here's a, just a quick survey of John's gospel. John 4, he's called the water of life. John 6, the bread of life. John 8, the light of life. John 11, the resurrection and the life. And then in his own words in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no one comes to the Father, which I would say that's the it. That's eternal life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Question, are you hungry for life? I mean real life, robust life, life that cannot be stolen by a bad day on the beach or a bad report or a bad email or a text. Do you want that kind of robust life because this life is found in the word of life, Jesus? Here's the second thing we want to look, look at. The first one argues for the deity of Christ. He is the, the, fir, the, the second person of the Godhead. And the second thing, he, the word of life, was made visible and physically experienced. Why is this so important to see, not only in the, in the prologue of 1 John, but also why is this continually addressed throughout the book of 1 John? And here's why. The heretical forms of Christianity called Gnosticism were developing late in the first century. Some of them are already there full-blown. Some of them are there seminally. They're going to be fully developed in the middle of the second century. Two major branches of Gnosticism, uh, Marcionism and Serentianism. Marcion would be on the scene about uh, 30 to 40 years later and uh, would formalize a, a line of thinking, uh, a heretical false teaching concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And in, in Marcionism, Marcion did not teach or believe that God, God could ever, the true supreme high God could ever be anything but spirit. Therefore, if Jesus is God and he came, he only appeared to have a body. All forms of Gnosticism actually believe that all matter in physical universe is bad and evil. And in fact, the high God did not and could not have created the material universe, but a lesser God, this is what they believe, this is not true, a lesser God, say, the angry, mean God of the Old Testament. That's how they thought. Or even worse, Satan created the physical universe. Therefore, if Jesus is God, he did not really come in the flesh. He only appeared to. So that's Marcionism. He's not going to be on the scene, scene, but you see in 1 John, he's addressing the idea that is forming. The other one that's fascinating is Serentianism. Serentius was a contemporary of John, and we know from several early church writers that he actually lived in Ephesus and crossed paths with John. John could not stand this man because of his heretical teachings and grossly immoral lifestyle. Serentius taught that Jesus of Nazareth was merely a man like you and I. But at his baptism, the Christ descended upon him, carried him for, for, for his three and a half years of ministry, and then departed before the crucifixion. So both of those ideas are addressed squarely in 1 John. And what John's argument is that God himself was made visible 
and physically experience. Firsthand eyewitness of Jesus, God in the flesh. He was made manifest and we have seen it. Two times the word manifest. It's from the root word uh, phos, where we get the word phosphorescent. It means light. And the idea of manifest is to make visible or known what has been hidden or unknown. To manifest by, whether, by words or deeds or in any other way. So the Gnostics were into this hidden, secret, initiated, occultic knowledge and ideas. And John right there is going, we have the real thing out in the open for everyone to see. He was manifest. Out in the open, accessible to all of us. God came near and, ex- and exposed us. And this, again, is how he opens his gospel in John 1.14. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word there is tabernacled. He pitched a tent. He entered an earthly tent called a human body. He was fully God and fully human. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this is why verse 1 of 1 John 1, he emphasizes the three senses. That which we have heard and seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands. Here's the good news. I have never personally heard, seen with my eyes and looked upon, or touched the person of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, Jesus, my high priest. But I have a man, an eyewitness, a person of the highest ethical standards. It's Christianity that gave us the idea that we should tell the truth and not lie and not make up stories that has permeated the world for the last 20 centuries and changed the fabric of society that we testify under oath to swear to give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That is a Christian ideal. And this is John of the highest ethics saying, I saw him, I touched him, I heard him. We have an eyewitness. And even, check this out, in his gospel, he refers to himself in third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Indicating a very special relationship that he alone had with Jesus the Christ. This eyewitness and personal best friend of Jesus is testifying to us of the word of life. He was made visible visible and physically experienced firsthand by John and the apostles. Fully God, fully human. What's the point of all this? It's found in the, the... Next two verses, verse 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. That's the main verb of this prologue. We proclaim also to you. Um, But he explains the object of the proclamation. The object is indicated by this phrase, so that. So that what? Go back. So that you too, so that you too may have fellowship 
with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, and you see I put a slash in your, I'm going to explain that in a moment, may be complete. The object of this apostolic proclamation that John's saying, we're testifying to you, is so that we would have fellowship and joy, or a kind of fellowship that leads to joy. What this means is the proclamation of Jesus and his gospel was not the end in and of itself. Its purpose, immediate and ultimate, is fellowship. That's the word koinonia in the Greek language. It means to have things in common, that we could have things in common with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and that this would be a koinonia that leads to kera, or joy. John Stott says this about this, this text, the fellowship created by Jesus in the day of his flesh within the apostolic band and deepened by the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was not to be limited to the apostles. It was to extend to the next generation and so on down the ages. And the idea of that is this. John is an eyewitness, best friend of Jesus, and he is inviting his readers, who are already believers, to step into a kind of intimate fellowship with God the Father and with his Son and with one another that we might have joy. Now, I said I was going to give you a, a note on, is it your or ours? Did you see that? If you want to get roll back in the slide, I, I just put it in there. Here's the deal. ESV says ours. Lots of other translations says yours about the joy. So the question is, is the joy John's and the apostles? Is it ours, indicated by yours? And here's, here's the challenge with this. Um, the textual evidence, best as I can see, the, the original Greek manuscripts, you have 24,000 New Testament manuscripts. And best as I can tell, it's 50-50, where yours shows up, your joy may be complete, or our joy may be complete. And it's not so much so that the ESV will note, note that. The New King James will note the other. So they're, they're on opposite ends. They cho chose different manuscript evidence. Um, but here's the deal. Either way, you end up with this. Our joy is still on the line. And Jesus cares deeply about our joy. Whether it flows through John's personal experience of joy that we would walk in the light, and that's bringing him great joy because he says that in 3 John uh, verse 4. Whether uh, the hour is kind of some kind of royal uh, term for not only mine, but everyone who's reading this too altogether, or whether it's supposed to actually be, I want more for you than from you. I want you to know Jesus at least as much as I've come to know Jesus. I want you to have as much joy as I have come to know joy, one thing we know for sure is that joy, our joy, your joy is on the line. And I'm talking about a kind of an unbreakable, infinite, robust joy that cannot be destroyed by a bad phone call or a broken water pipe. 
Would you like that kind of joy? Listen, Jesus is concerned for our joy. Back to John's gospel, John 15, 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And this is all upper room discourse, talking to his disciples and through his disciples to us. Chapter 16, verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Jesus cares about our joy. And then finally in John 17, verse 13, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus cares about your joy. But here's the problem with joy. We all want it. We all imagine what would bring it to us. We all try to make it the goal and draw a straight line to it. And we often get it wrong. You actually cannot draw a straight line to joy. A, a Christmas wish list, a genie in a bottle kind of desire. Joy cannot be the focus and the goal. It matters, and Jesus wants it for us, but it can't be the thing. Joy is an outcome. It's a side benefit of something, and it brings us back to relationship. It brings us back to this word, koinonia, and fellowship. Joy matters, but it is contingent upon fellowship. What John is inviting us into, the fellowship with he and the other apostles, a fellowship with the Father and his Son, a fellowship with the rest of the believers. Do you see how many times he's talked about loving the brothers throughout the reading? How he's deeply concerned about fellowship. And that fellowship with God the Father and the Son absolutely means fellowship with one another. Fellowship is back to relationship. In Psalm 1611, David writes, you, you, have made, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, you, God, in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, pleasure forevermore. Um, so fellowship with God is the fullness of joy. But did you also catch this line, so that you might have fellowship with us. It's not just with God the Father and with the Son, but it's with one another. Fellowship with us. Again, John Stott says, this statement is a rebuke to much of our modern evangelism and church life. We cannot be content with evangelism, which does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, nor with a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And Scott goes on to say, this is the divine order. Proclamation, fellowship, and then joy. This is John's logic. That joy is found in fellowship with the Father and His Son and with His people. Here's our bottom line for the message. The conclusion. This joyly, joyful fellowship is freely available to each and every one of us here this morning. But the rest of John's epistle, but we must intentionally walk in it. 
few verses later, we're going to read this. If we walk in the light, walk is process of living. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. People who walk in the light get along, love each other well. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You need some cleansing here today? You need some fellowship? Then we need to learn to walk in the light. And that's what this prologue, that's what this introduction sets us up for. How do we have this fellowship that leads to this kind of robust, unbreakable joy? So the rest of our sermon series is going to be unpacked the how-to of fellowship, life, and joy. Here's some ideas that we're going to come across. Okay, shotgun list. Um, How to have true fellowship with God and walk in the light. Because that's going to be where life and joy is found. What to do when we blow it and we, we sin. How to grow in, in, in intimacy with God by keeping his word. How to not love the world, but instead do the will of God. How to identify and avoid false teaching, because bad living starts with bad thinking. Turning away from habitual sin. How to live out a tangible love for our brothers and sisters from the heart. Learning about and living in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because we've only talked about two persons of the Godhead so far, but John includes all three. Living by faith and overcoming the world. The joy of obeying Jesus' commandments. Not a got to, but a get to. And then finally, assurance of salvation, confidence in the Lord, and ministry to one another. Why is this so important? Because we're all looking for life and joy. The kind of unbreakable joy that the cares and concerns of this world cannot destroy. And it's found in fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with one another. And that's First John. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for John. I just love that this is some of the last scripture added to the New Testament canon, closest to our time, with the most development going on in the Roman Empire uh, that pertains to the growth of the Christian movement, the Christian faith and theology. I love this stuff. Lord, it is a, a challenging text and a challenging book. We look forward to, and Lord, that, that you would hook us and draw us back as we explore. Because Lord, we are all, you've placed within us a desire for joy and life and fellowship. Grow us and grow this church both in quality and in quantity. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.